0: Welcome to the 26th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan, and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Bill Earnshaw from the University of Edinburgh. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Bill, for joining me today. Uh, please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Um, you completed your PhD with Jonathan King at MIT in 1977. You then went on to do your postdoc in Cambridge with Aaron Klug and Ron Leskey, and in Geneva with Ulrich Lemley. You then went on to the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Tom Pollard's Department of Cell Biology and Anatomy, where you stayed 13 years. And then in 1996, you moved to Edinburgh as a Wellcome Trust Principal Research Fellow as part of the initiative to bring modern cell biology to Edinburgh, and you are still there today. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science?
1: Well, I think my my interest in biology, I, I really owe to my mother, who decided when I was quite young, she used to just make these announcements, like, this summer you're going to camp. And I hadn't asked anything or thought <laughs> anything about this so she announced that one year I was going to camp and it was in a bird sanctuary in, uh, in the town of Lenox, Massachusetts, near where I lived there. And I ended up going, uh, going to summer camp there for probably five or six years. And in the last three of those years, they had a program that was a little bit more advanced where you would do, it was all zoology and ecology uh, so or botany. So it was all, all there was nothing. So cell, no cellular biology, but you would do bits of experiments and you would really think about things. And I, I learned a lot from that. So that really uh, that was very important to me. And I, I thought that I was quite interested in that. But in fact, when I went to university, the first thing I decided I was going to be was a poet. So I went to university to study poetry. And uh, I made a terrible discussion, which a terrible discovery, which is really not good, which was that I didn't really like reading poetry all that much. I liked writing it, but I figured it would be a bit hypocritical to try to be a poet if I didn't really like reading poetry very much. So then the next thing I decided that I would be was uh, that I would be an artist. And I worked quite hard on that uh, for uh, the whole time I was at university. And what I was interested in was photography, and really pushing the pushing what you could do with abstract photography, not just taking pictures of things. So I did that during most of my university time, but I also took some science classes, and I enjoyed them, and I particularly enjoyed a class that I took in my third of my, in America, the university was four years, and so in my third year, I took a class with a biochemistry professor named Douglas Meyer, and it was absolutely fantastic. He just opened up the world of biochemistry and what happens inside cells to me. And this was really, really fascinating. So I decided uh, that that I was quite interested in that, and I pursued that in my final year. And then he persuaded me that I should apply for uh, a fellowship from what's called the National Science Foundation in the United States. And so I did that, and I got that fellowship. And that meant, basically, that I was free for any – postgraduate school that would take me they wouldn't have to pay anything so i could get in almost anywhere so i made a kind of a i made a choice that sounds for biology sounds absolutely perfect but i didn't make it for a biological reason so i chose to go to mit but the reason i chose to go to mit to graduate school was because in the architecture department was a photographer named minor white who i really worshipped i thought he was fantastic and so i thought i'll go to mit and i'll try this science business and i'm not so sure about it but if I really like it, I'll stick with it. And if I don't, I'll try to go and work for minor white. But it turned out that I loved it. So in, in labs, in science labs, I could never identify the unknown. I could never get the right grams of white powder in chemistry <laughs> lab. I could never get anything to work very well. And I didn't enjoy it all that much. But when I went to MIT and all of a sudden nobody knew the answer, that was a whole new world. And so I fell in love with biology
0: so this this uh, yeah opens up a new question, uh, so uh, your your shirt also um, has like pictures on it, uh, and uh, what I read from your work is that you're into yeah, microscopy and then taking images. Is this where this ca- comes from, uh, the, your interest in photography and now the uh, microscopy
1: well. It- Yes, but actually the, the real love in science for me and, and what kind of scratches the same place in my, in my insides there as, as art does, it's cre- being creative. So it's thinking of a solution. So, I mean, in a, in a photograph, you have to think of a solution of what to do with some combination of light and objects that you have. But actually, the reason I really loved science and I didn't have to go and work with Minor White was because I found that if you can create a new idea in a, an experiment, if you can do something that nobody's ever done before, that's also very creative. And it's creative in the same way. That, for me, it's creative in the same way that producing a work of art is because you have to have an, you, you have, you have an idea. You think of a problem. You have an idea of how to approach that problem. But then in this kind of art, you have to be able to do something with your hands. And the same thing in science. Ideas are cheap. But you have to be able to do something with your hands in order to turn those ideas into science.
0: So coming to your science, the point of your research has, among others, been the, se- the center of mitotic chromosome. So meaning the centromere where the kin- kinetochore sits. Um, when you started uh, with your work on that, what was known about those structures?
1: So what was known about the centromere at the time when I started was uh, that uh, if you look at mitotic chromosomes, uh, you have two sister chromatids. This is the two products of DNA replication, and they're, they're side by side. They're held together by cohesive complexes, which are now called cohesin. And except they don't, they're not just completely parallel. At one point, they become very tightly paired. And this is this sort of makes the X shape that people are familiar with looking at, which is one way that you can prepare mitotic chromosomes. And that region is called the centromere. And we knew it was interesting for quite a few reasons. We know that we knew that it was where microtubules attached to the chromosome. So uh, we knew that it was, uh, uh, it was important. It, it was something that could inter- It was a region that could interact with the, with the cytoskeleton. We also knew that it could actually sense tension. Uh, and uh, Bruce Nicholas did an amazing set of experiments in 1968, where he proved that chromosomes can sense tension because if you took chromosomes and you simply you took a chromosome you knocked it off the mitotic spindle and you put it over to where it would attach to microtubules but it wouldn't be under tension it would just let go but if you took it and put it over there and then took a needle and pulled on it so you would think that would make it let go because you're pulling on it but actually if you were pulling on it it would never let go so chroma so the, these centromeres are very interesting they can attach to microtubules they can sense tension they're the last two place they're the last place where those sister chromatids are held together so that the signal that says finally, okay, separate the chromosomes and divide to the cell has to act on that centromere region, and, uh, uh, and in, in addition, uh, they send signals to, this, uh, to, the, uh, to the cell cycle uh, machinery of the cell, letting it know when they have made proper attachments. So the do, centromere does all of these things. What was known when I started? Well, it was known that there was a structure there on the surface of the centromere called the kinetochore, and the kinetochore is kind of like a—it's it, sort of like a button on the surface of the chromosome, and the microtubules attached to that button. But nobody knew what was in the kinetochore. Nobody knew how the DNA was folded in and around that region, and uh, basically, you could just see it, but you couldn't really study it. And the reason why you couldn't really study it was it's just part of the whole chromosome. So there was no way to get that one region out away from all the rest of the chromosome.
0: So when you then started, how did you approach it? And then what did you first tackle as?
1: Yeah, so my first approach to that was to take advantage of, uh, to take advantage of the great power of human genetics and, uh, and human disease biology. So what I learned was, and actually Uli Lemley, when I was a postdoc in Uli Lemley's lab, Uli told me about this paper that had been published by a Japanese postdoc in Colorado, and that Japanese postdoc had been screening human sera. So he was a rheumatologist. Now, one of the things that rheumatologists do, if you have an obscure muscle ache or complaint or something else that brings you to the attention of a rheumatologist, they'll take a sample of your blood, and then they'll screen it, and they'll look for antibodies that recognize yourself. Those are called autoantibodies. And they would usually screen those antibodies by taking sections of mouse liver or rat liver that they would just buy. And they would look, particularly one of the things they would look for would be anti-nuclear antibodies. So these would be antibodies that would stain the nucleus. So if you, uh, many people know that if you have systemic lupus, you often have antibodies to DNA or, or you can have antibodies to histone. Those antibodies stain the nucleus. And that's a sign that you've got this kind of autoimmune response going but one of the patterns was called speckled nuclear. Well, there are a variety of speckled nuclear patterns, and so that's just exactly what it sounds like. The autoantibodies from this person would stain the nucleus, but there would be spots. So it turns out this Japanese postdoc who was uh, working with Ingtan in Colorado at the time did something that had never occurred to anybody to do before. And that was, he took some serum from some of these patients, and instead of putting it on mouse liver where there aren't any dividing cells, he put it on tissue culture cells, and he saw that some of the speckled patterns actually stained the centromere regions of the chromosomes. And so uh, when I was Uli's postdoc, I, Uli introduced me to that paper, and I thought, this is really fascinating. And actually, Uli wrote to ing Tan, and we asked him for some serum, and we got some serum, and it must have been from somebody who had just eaten a very large chocolate cake or something, because the serum was so thick and full of, I, I imagine, fat you couldn't hardly even pipette it. So we couldn't do anything with it. So uh, I then, when I went back to MIT, I remembered about these antibodies and I thought I would work with them. And then how I ended up getting the antibodies uh, and to do the study is another long story. Go
0: ahead. <laughs> we have time.
1: <laughs> All right, so again, I was incredibly lucky. And I, but it, it, in a way that you might not suspect. So, it turns out, I, found, I decided I wanted to work on these antibodies. And so what I learned to do from Uli Lemley, that's very difficult. And Uli, Uli was the master. He, he developed this technology. Uh, he taught Kathy Lewis and other people in his lab how to do this. And they published, and this is how to isolate pretty pure mitotic chromosomes from human cells. You might think it's easy, but it's really not easy because when, uh, that, when, you isolate, when as soon as the cells go into mitosis, a whole bunch of stuff sticks to the chromosomes Uli spent years developing methods to get really pure mitotic chromosomes, and I learned how to do that. So I knew that if I could get a hold of antibodies that would recognize the centromere, I had a really good source of antigen because I could purify the human chromosomes to do that. So I called up the rheumatologist at Johns Hopkins, where I was. It's it's a top hospital, so I figured I'll, I'll get some serum. And I get the response, yeah, well, actually, the people in our rheumatology department don't think autoantibodies are very important. They think other things are more important and we don't work with them. (laughs) So, okay, well, what shall I do? Well, uh, the head of rheumatology said, Well, I have a friend. Her name is Naomi Rothfield in Connecticut. And she's called, some people call her the queen of lupus. She's a real expert at autoantibodies and lupus. Maybe she'll help you. So, this is now, we're talking about mm, 1983. Long time ago. So you write a letter in 1983. There was no internet. You write a letter, you write a letter to Naomi Rothfield and she doesn't reply. So you like you wait months. You write another letter and she doesn't reply. And then you say, you know, a bunch of unprintable stuff and you say one last letter. And so you write that letter and finally she replies. And it turns out that she's really special because her husband was a basic scientist. And so She's a rheumatologist. She's working in Connecticut, but her her catchment area is the whole northern part of around New York City. So she has a huge patient population. And because her husband is a scientist, she takes every one of these serum samples that she's gotten from her patients and she saves them and she puts them in a spreadsheet. I mean, in those days, people didn't have Excel, I don't think. And maybe there was Excel in 1982. I'm not sure. I don't think so. It was unusual. So she had... 60,000 patient sera in a series of minus 80 freezers in this hallway. And she knew what was in there. She knew the diagnosis for each patient and she knew whatever notes they had about the serum. So these serum were rare. They only, the sera, the anti-centromere antibodies, only come along a few times per million per year, in the, for per million in the population. So they're really, really rare. And so Naomi Rothfield said, oh yeah, I have some of these antibodies. I can give you some okay so she sent me some antibodies and that was great but the other thing that was really particularly special and that made my collaboration with naomi something that became a really collaboration and a deep friendship for many years was the fact that she was a scientist at heart she was a doctor but she was also a scientist so what happened to lots of people was they, they heard they read that paper they would get to the, go to the local hospital they would get, get some serum from a rheumatologist. And they, would, they could stain and they could see spots. And this was really great. And then they would say, oh, can I have some more? No, that's my patient. That's not an experiment. You can't have more serum from this person. There's no medical reason to give you more serum. Well, Naomi would, had really good relationship with her patients. And so it turned out that when I started screening the serum, some of the best serum, and one of the best serum was from a woman named Grace Simpkins. Grace Simpkins came in and gave blood. So that uh, she gave, uh, you know, we 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 would get twenty or thirty milliliters of blood from her, which she would just give as a donation to do this. And I say her name, even though you know that medical these things are all are, are all uh, they're all confidential. And that's because she, her serum closed clone Simp B, and her serum also cloned Simp C, which are two of the major proteins of the kinetic core. And she suffered greatly with scleroderma. So she had very hard veins and it was very difficult to be bled. It was difficult and painful to be bled. So she was a real hero. And we said, Grace, you're a real hero. Do you mind if we tell people who you were? And she said, no, that would be really nice. I I really like that. I'm proud. So that, that, that patient of Naomi's made a huge contribution. But it was because Naomi was a scientist at heart a medical scientist at heart that we got access that i got access to all of these sera so i could sort of shop among the sera to see which ones were the best and serum from one of the patients i mean some of these so uh, active motif you guys make antibodies and you sell antibodies you've never sold an antibody like this i can show you blots in a paper where i've diluted the serum one to twenty-five thousand fold one to hundred and twenty-five thousand fold, and there's still a signal in the block. Then you know, and this is this is not uh, one of your Calif- one of your California competitors who has a funny name who's famous for diluting their antibody. This is this this is antibody from this patient that was uh, just of an unbelievable titer. Now, why the antibody is such a huge high titer in that patient, we still have no idea.
0: How did you then use those antibodies to? Yeah, characterize the rest of components of 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 the kinetochore and the centromere.
1: Well, the first thing was to try to prove. So the first thing I did, or the first thing that we did in my lab, was we just did an immunoblot. We did an immunoblot, and we saw three bands recognized. Uh, and uh, but we weren't sure that they were really centromeric proteins. But now, from Naomi Rothfield, I had something is just amazing. So. Remember, these antibodies, these patients come along, you know, a couple of times per million per year. Well, in Naomi's library, we had pre-immune serum from a woman. We had a woman who had come in with muscle aches and pains, and she had been bled, and then six months later she'd been bled, and then she'd been bled, and then she'd been bled, and then then she developed antiescentomere antibodies, and then she was bled and bled. So I had these sequential serum samples from this one person And I could see that what happened was when she became positive for anti-centromere antibodies as detected by immunofluorescence, boom, three proteins appeared. And these were the same three proteins that I saw when I took other patients serum and I did immunoblots on chromosomes. So then the worst thing that the worst and hardest thing that I spent uh, six months on, and I did this myself, was trying to figure out how to affinity purify these antibodies off of the blot and put them back into a cell for immunofluorescence to to sort of close the loop to prove that that band in the blot bound an antibody that when I did immunofluorescence with it was its centromeres. And the trouble was the antibodies had such high affinity that every time I tried to get them off the blot, they were dead, until a guy named Van Bennett in our department, a really excellent biochemist, gave me a hint on how to do this. And so that sort of closed the loop, and then I was able to show that these three antibodies were antibodies that recognized uh, the centromere. But then there's a problem. Uh, there, that, that first paper, which I published in I think it was 1985, with Naomi Rothfield, uh, raised a question that's never been answered still today. And that was, so we, we know so there were three proteins like this. A, a very big one, that's simp C. Then there was SIMP B, and then down at the bottom of the gel there was something called SIMP. So I just called them A, B, and C up the gel. So that was just a fluke that Simp A, which is so important in centribiology, is Simp A. It was just because it was the smallest one, and I started at the bottom. It could have been Simp C, but of course, actually now it turns out that Simp C is also incredibly important. So A and C were were both really important, and B is no slouch either. Uh, so I was able to affinity purify these antibodies, and then that's uh, we worked with them, and then we cloned B and C, but we didn't try to clone A because I knew that a guy named Kevin Sullivan. Was working on A, and I figured I had enough with B and C. And we, we, uh, and Kevin and actually Kevin and I cloned sent B together, so that was really exciting. This was in the early days of expression vector cloning, when you basically you took phage expressing human proteins and you put them on a bacterial lawn, and then you put the pull, pulled the plaques onto nitrocellulose paper and you screened with antibody looking for phage that were expressing the protein. And, and it, it's, it's, it's actually really the truth that when we took the first film we took out of the Exomat film developer, Kevin Sullivan held it up and I was standing right beside him and we saw a spot. I said, look at that. And that spot turned out to be the clone of Sim b which was the first centromere protein that we cloned.
0: That's, that's very <laughs> interesting and also very like, uh, yeah, working with your hands and, and doing all by yourself. You then went on to also characterize other proteins of, of the centromere. How did that turn out?
1: Well, uh, so, so, so the Simp B and Simp C, so Simp C was cloned by, uh, Hasato Saito and John Tomkill who were two postdocs in my lab. And John really wanted to try to find their Drosophila version of Simp C and, and never succeeded. Uh, and, uh, so we, we worked with those proteins and it was quite difficult. We were a little bit ahead of our time so we could clone the proteins, but there were no siRNAs then that, I mean, there were people who were just heading towards uh, getting big prizes for figuring out how to do the first mouse knockouts. I mean, it, you couldn't routinely do any kind of knockouts, so we couldn't really do genetics on these proteins. We would try to find homologs of the proteins in systems where you could do genetics, like Drosophila. We couldn't find them with the reagents that we had, so we were pretty stuck. It was difficult to do biochemistry with them at the time, so uh, that was uh, that was all qu- quite slow. So uh, then the other proteins that are in the centromere region that we work on are proteins of what's called the chromosomal passenger complex. And uh, oh, but, oh, but I didn't tell you something I want to tell you. I want to go back. I want to go back to the problem that never got solved. So there, here's the problem that never got solved. So people can think about this. Somebody somebody has to solve this problem. So here we have Simp c at 100, it was running like 140 kilodaltons. it's not, but Simp b which was running like 80 kilodaltons. it's a smaller protein, and Simp a and Now I affinity purify the antibody from it. When I affinity purify the antibody from CYP-C, I get antibody that on, when I re-blot with it, binds to Simp c and Simp b When I affinity, the purify, affinity purify the antibody from Simp b it binds to all three of the proteins. When I affinity to purify the antibody from Simp A, which is way all the way down at the bottom of the blot, it binds to Simp A and Simp B. So there's something in the patient antibodies that cross-reacts between A and B, and B and C, and between all of them. But we've cloned all of those proteins, and there's no sequences that are conserved. So there's something else, some kind of a post-translational modification or something that's recognized by the human autoantibodies because those cross reactions look quite neat and clean on the blots. So that's still a problem. There's something going on there that we don't know. Uh, We don't know what it is. Uh, All right, so then how did we get involved uh, in working with the chromosome passenger complex? So that came because Carol Cook, my uh, technician in the lab, wanted to learn to do something new And we had one of the ways that we proved that we cloned Simp B was by making monoclonal antibodies to the uh, to a bacterially expressed protein that we had cloned and showing that we had, uh, in fact, cloned the right protein. There were in the in the older days, it was a big just because you had had a clone didn't necessarily prove that it was the clone of the protein you thought it was. And people take a lot of things for granted now that we spent months and months working to try to demonstrate. So anyway, we made monoclonal antibodies uh, to SEMP-B. And uh, Carol wanted to, uh, she, she, she got the idea that it would be fun to make monoclonal antibodies to chromosomes. So she made, t- she, she isolated uh, what are called chromosome scaffolds, which is basically, it's a way of taking, isolating chromosomes and then get, getting rid of about 90% of the protein. So you get rid of almost all of the histone and most of the other proteins. And you end up with a subset of fairly large molecular weight proteins left. This is the, we now know, this is the condensin complex. It's TOPO2 and KIF4, the chromokinesin. They're at the, up at the top of the gel, bands on the top of the gel. So what she did was she took that chromosome scaffold fraction and she made monoclonal antibodies to it. And there was a protein that just wanted to be discovered because she got about 15 independent isolates of one clone. It was recognizing this one protein. And so uh, we, we, got the, uh, we got the isolated monoclonal antibody which was 3D3 and 3D3 antibody recognized, uh, it recognized this chicken protein. Oh yeah. So the, the work that we were doing with, so the work that we did with the autoantibodies, we did with HeLa cells and human proteins. In fact, that was one of the reasons why we were able to succeed where other people didn't because other cell biologists loved all these model systems. And so they were screening mouse and hamster and rat kangaroo and all these other organisms and never screening human. So when you screen human, you can see those really easily. But now I, also going on in my lab at the same time, I wanted to make my own antibodies to chromosomal proteins. And I didn't think human was the right choice because if I take human proteins and I inject them into a rabbit or a mouse, I'm taking proteins from one mammal and injecting them into another mammal. And I might, and if these are pretty conserved proteins, I might or I might not get a decent immune response. So I had a colleague, Larry Gerace, who was famous because he had identified the proteins of the nuclear lamina. And the way he did that was he took rat nuclear lamins and he injected them into chickens. And he made antibodies in chickens and they got good, strong uh, specific antibodies in chickens against the mammalian protein. So I had one go at bleeding a chicken, and I said, <laughs> "No, there's got to be chicken cell lines. I'm going to isolate chicken chromosomes, and I'm going to inject them into rabbits, among the others. That's much easier. So that's what we did. So we isolated these proteins uh, from chicken chromosomes, and Carol and Cook made the antibodies, and the first antibody clonal antibody identified a protein called insulin." And inSIP is the scaffolding protein of the chromosome passenger complex. It's the protein that activates Aurora B kinase, and uh, it's the lo- part of the localization module that tethers that kinase in different places in cells. So that's how we 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 we're, we're making monoclonal antibodies against whole chromosome scaffolds, hoping to come up with lots and lots of different proteins. And we got one, but it was really interesting. It was insip
0: Yeah. How did it then go on? I mean, we we uh, yeah, huh. did you? Characterize the. Well, the- that was
1: another weird. That was another weird story because okay, so I got this monoclonal antibody to this protein endosome, and at that time there there are people who work on the nucleus and there are people who work on the cytoplasm, and so um, you know my my department was Tom Pollard, who's a very famous guy who works on actin, and he thought the nucleus was dirt, and uh, <laughs> I worked on the nucleus, and I thought the cytoskeleton was dirt. And so now I get this antibody, and if I put it on a blot of chromosomes, it stains this beautiful chromosomal protein, and if I make a spread of chromosomes, it stains in the centromere region in a really inner way, interesting way, because it stains in between the two sister chromatids. But if I actually look at mitotic cells, what happens is it's in the nucleus, it's in the nucleus, then as they go into mitosis, it's all over the chromosomes, then it concentrates in the centromere, and then it anaphase, all of a sudden it's on the spindle. Now it's, it's become a traitor. It's gone over to the cytoskeleton. It's left the nucleus. And it, it ends up in the midbody. And nobody had ever seen anything like this before. And I said, oh, this is a monoclonal antibody. Now everybody knows that monoclonal antibodies react with one epitope. How on earth do I know that this epitope that I'm seeing in the anaphase cells, when it's on the spindle and then it's on the midbody, how do I know it's on the same protein? So what I had to do. Was I had to immunize? I had to immunize mice again with this protein, uh, with the with the, uh, with the same immunogen, and get polyclonal antibody from the mice. And then I did the same thing that I had done with the centromere proteins. I I affinity purified the antibody from the band on the the polyclonal band on the mouse, and that antibody stained chromosomes, centromeres, but also the spindle. So then I knew, yeah, this really is a protein that moves. And so that's why we called it a chromosome passenger protein. We knew that it was. We knew that it was on the chromosomes. The chromosomes took it to the center of the spindle at metaphase, and then somehow, just in late metaphase or early anaphase, it transferred to the spindle, and uh, then uh, the then stayed in the central spindle when cells divided. Now, the reason why we thought that was interesting was because we had been taking anti-centromere antibodies from patients and injecting them into cells. And, what, and when you do that, basically, you kill the assembly of the kinetochore. We, we, we saw that. And we also saw that what would happen was that, basically, you, you now have this mitotic cell that forms, and the nucleus, instead of making nice chromosomes that line up in the middle, just kind of stays like, in some of, in some of the cells, just kind of stays like a ball on one side of the, of the thing. And you assemble the spindle. So you assemble the spindle, but the nucleus is up here on top what we then noticed was that we could sometimes see those cells go into anaphase and when they went into anaphase when those cells where the cells where the chromosomes were up here but the spindle assembled over here when they went into anaphase the spindle just completely fell to pieces so that gave me the idea that chromosomes when they go to the middle they must give something to the spindle that helps the spindle to become stable so that when it segregates in anaphase, it's stable, and we had this chromosomal protein that went with the chromosomes. And then, as soon as the spindle started to segregate, it was now on the spindle. So that was an obvious candidate for that. So that's why we that's why we decided to name that group of proteins chromosomal passengers.
0: Okay, I see. And you also studied um, the way the chromosomes are moved or are compacted together. And there are two different proteins that would act in different uh, dimensions, right? So how did you How does that work?
1: Uh, well, the, the story of mitotic chromosome compaction, how, how chromosomes condense is a really, really long story. And it's, uh, I I have to say that, uh, we just published a couple of years ago in 2018, we published a paper that I'm very proud of, but I would say we, the, the story is not, the solution is not completely solved yet. So, uh, what happened when Fleming first identified chromosomes? Actually, Fleming, you know, the, uh, it's you know sort of 1878 around that time. Fleming reported and uh, decided to name these things chromosomes that he saw. But just a couple of years later, a guy named Baranetsky published a paper looking at plant chromosomes, and he saw that they looked very helical. So all, almost as soon as chromosomes were discovered, people saw that sometimes chromosomes look like spirals. They look like corkscrews. Uh, and so that was one model for how chromosomes would be formed that we, we uh, so later on when, you know, it was, it was, a, it was, you know, 60 years later that people identified DNA as the, as the genetic material, but we learned that DNA and then Watson Crick in 1950 determined that DNA was a helix. So you have a DNA helix and you could have a super helix in the whole thing. So there could be a sort of a hierarchy of one level of helix, another level of helix, and then the chromosomes make a helix. So that was a very popular model. But then a guy named Ernest DuPra was a, he was an electron microscopist and he developed methods for basically whole mounting chromosomes. So he developed ways to get a whole mitotic chromosome into substrate so that he could look at it in the electron microscope. He did that by critical point drying. And when he critical point dried chromosomes and looked at them, they just like looked like compacted spaghetti. So he said, oh, chromosomes are just random spaghetti. And then Uli Lemley, uh, was uh, looking at chromosomes, and he got some evidence that chromosomes might have loops inside of them. And then he looked back at what was known about the literature, and it was known that, for example, in a diplotene phase of meiosis in many organisms, chromosomes form what are called lamp chromosomes. And those have very big, very obvious loops. Uh, they're actually prophase chromosomes, but uh, they, they have very, very obvious loops. So chromosomes could have loops, and then uh, when people did uh, a whole mount electron microscopy of polyteen chromosomes, particularly of puffs in polyteen chromosomes, you could, again, you could see that this was formed of loops. And so this fitted, and then Uli Lindley kind of ran with this hypothesis, and he figured out how to extract the proteins from chromosomes, and Jim Paulson did the first experiments. Jim Paulson and a guy named Ken Adolph did the first experiments. And they ended up with this stuff which Uli Lemley called the chromosome scaffold, and then they could see the DNA coming out and making loops. And then there were another series, there were multiple experiments from Uli's lab. There was uh, uh, a study from Marst, uh, somebody, uh, Patricia Marston and Uli Lemley where they thin-sectioned mitotic cells, and they could see what looked like loops under certain circumstances. And then I also saw loops when I was a postdoc in Uli's lab. So chromosomes could be loops. Or they could be a spiral, or they could be just spaghetti. So what's going on? And uh, the really great thing about this—this—so I work with this. I mean, one of the most fun things to do in science is to collaborate with people. If you pick the right collaborators, you can have such a fantastic time. So I was at a meeting in France, and I saw Yob Decker and Leonid Mirny uh, uh, present at this meeting, and they were talking. They had just published the first high sea map of uh, mitotic HeLa cells. And I thought this was amazingly exciting. And the obvious thing to me, because of my background in a, in a bit of, I, I, of, of uh, phage genetics and sort of having worked in genetics departments, the obvious thing to me that they needed to do next was to get some genetics and get some good cell synchrony. And so I worked on them uh, uh, at that meeting. I really lobbied them hard to try to get them to, interest, to be interested to collaborate with me. And they finally said, sure, they would, they would collaborate with me. So, we made some samples and sent them to them, and not very much happened for a while. And then uh, a brilliant postdoctoral fellow in my lab, Kamiko Samajima, made an additional breakthrough. And so, she figured out how to get mitotic cells to enter, how to get chicken cells to enter mitosis with almost perfect synchrony. So, uh, we can get cells to enter, but we can, we can subject cells to a block in G2, and we can wash out a drug, and within five minutes, 90 percent of the population will enter mitosis. So this is a wave of synchrony, and this means you can make biochemical samples like what you need to do high C. If you do, if you're not doing single cell high C, you need biochemically pure samples. So we could get biochemically pure samples, and so we sent this material to uh, to Decker's lab. And the first postdoc was busy finishing up, and she went. Uh, she didn't do anything with it, and then the next guy sort of didn't do anything for a while. And then I got this, I, this is the sort of thing people joke about. I got this, oh my God, email. They had finally done high C with these samples. <laughs> and Yog Decker said, uh, uh, in, an, uh, in a phone call, he said, this is what I, Yog really loves. He's, he's super famous and he does. He's really important. Doing all sorts of genome high C structure. But he's crazy about mitotic chromosomes. He loves mitotic chromosomes. He said, this is why I entered high C. I couldn't believe this because what we saw that they hadn't seen before was that in a normal high C map, you can see long range structure, which you called compartments. And this is regions of the genome that are active or that are inactive. And you can also see short range regions of up to a few hundred KB. And those are called TADs or topologically associating domains. And these are regions which are uh, largely defined by cohe- where cohesion is on the chromosome and they're regions of local loops and local interactions. And in mitosis, what happens is the compartments go away, and the TADs go away, and the whole chromosome just becomes a a linear structure with loops. That's what they had seen. But what they saw when they had perfect mitotic synchrony was they saw those loops, and then all of a sudden on the high C-maps, two new diagonal lines of interactions appeared on either side of the central diagonal line. In in the in the heat maps and what those lines said was that every region on the chromosome was interacting with regions Two to five megabases away in a sequence non-specific way The only way that we could think that that could happen was if the structure was a coil and so Locally, so if I'm if I'm in a coil locally, I'm interacting with guys all around here But if the coil comes around now I can interact with guys up here in the next stretch of the coil That's the pitch of the helix and if the pitch of the helix is, if it takes two megabases to get around here, then every sequence is going to interact with other sequences that are two megabases along the DNA. And so uh, Anton golub uh, who was a student with Leonid Mirny at the time, modeled the structure. And he showed that the, the high C data that we had could be fit really perfectly. If you assumed that in the center of the chromosome, there was a stair, like a spiral staircase going up. And that would be the chromosome scaffold. And then out of each step would be coming a loop. And because we could measure the high C maps, we knew how big the loops were. And we, uh, what we determined, uh, uh, by combining Kimiko's, uh, uh, genetics. So Kamiko was making all the knock-in cell lines and oxen degrons and all. It's, it's quite technical cell biology stuff to create the samples. This is all Kamiko's. Uh, Kamiko thought up how to do this, and it's it's her hands that had done it all. Uh, she could so she could make samples where there was no condensin two. So there are two condensin complexes, and unfortunately for those who don't work on condensin. The na- they got named in the order they got discovered. They didn't get named in the order they act. So in fact, they act in the opposite order from how they got discovered. So condensin 2 is always in cell nuclei, and it's what starts to form the chromosomes during prophase. Condensin 1 is out in the cytoplasm and jumps onto the chromosomes only after the nuclear envelope breaks down at the beginning of prometaphase. And so what we showed was that you needed condensin-2 to assemble the spiral staircase. Because if you didn't have condensin-2, what you got in mitosis was chromosomes that were long and thin, and they had a series of loops, and those loops were created by the condensin-1 after the nuclear envelope broke down. If you didn't have condensin-1, you had a spiral, but you had really, really big loops. So you had sort of short, fat chromosomes if you didn't have condensin-1. And the reason why you have big loops when you don't have condensin-1, it's, it's easy to think of. if uh, hmm. well,
0: So we are audio, so we, we won't see it.
1: <laughs> well, we have some people who won't see it, so I'll just describe it then. So imagine you, ha- you have a cell nucleus, you start to go into mitosis, and you have condensin-2. And what condensin-2 does is it grabs onto the DNA, and it, uh, it, it, it grabs onto two parts of the DNA, it comes together, and then it pushes the DNA out to form a loop. So condensin-2 is forming loops inside the prophase nucleus. And so uh, that happens during the process of prophase. And meanwhile, condensin-1 is outside of the nucleus. So condensin-2 forms quite large loops, uh, 60. They they eventually get up to about 400 kilobases in size. So now when the nuclear envelope breaks down and condensin-1 can jump onto the DNA it doesn't just jump onto a linear DNA molecule. It jumps onto a DNA molecule that's already been formed into loops. So it makes loops inside the loops. Okay. Right? C- Condensin-1 is all... It's, uh, these SMC proteins all make loops. Well, these condensin and cohesion make loops. And so it wants to make loops, but the genome is already these really big loops. So it takes the big loops and it makes them into lots of smaller loops. And actually making the big loops... Into the smaller loops is what compacts the chromosome.
0: And, and what is on the base of the how does it know how big the loops have to be? We,
1: as far as we know, what determines how big the loops are is how many condensins there are and how long they're resonant on the DNA. So Daniel Garlic and uh, Jan Ellenberg's lab and other people have done FRAP experiments, fluorescence recovery after photo bleaching uh, photo bleaching. And they've determined that the half-lives for condensin-2 and condensin-1 and cohesin. And it turns out that of those three, condensin-2 is the most stable one. It has quite a long half-life. So it, so if each the, the way people talk about what these molecules now do is they say they extrude loops. So they jump onto DNA. They're ring-shaped molecules. And they kind of push a loop of DNA outwards through their ring, and they just keep pushing it and making it bigger and bigger and bigger bigger loop. So the longer the the molecule sits on the DNA, the bigger the loop it pumps out. So if the molecule is only on the DNA for a few seconds, like condensin-1 is, it can pump a loop of a certain size out, but then it'll fall off, and that loop is now gone. So then a new condensin-1 has to come on and start again. So you end up in mitosis in metaphase, at least in the cells that we were studying, where the the loops made by condensin two are about 400 kilobases. And then inside those loops, there are loops of about 80 kilobases or so made by condensin one. And the condensin one is coming on and off and on and off and on and off. And the condensin two does come on and off, but much, much, much more slowly. So its loops are bigger. And it's condensin two that makes the spiral staircase. Condensin-1 alone can't do it.
0: Okay. So I have another question because uh, this show is called The Epigenetics Podcast. So um, you also studied some epigenetics uh, in the context of the kinetochore and the centromere uh, in two papers in 2015. And also uh, you looked at uh, HP1-alpha. So what is the epigenetic influence on those structures?
1: Yeah, so so that takes us back to the centromere. Now, one of the things we know uh, right from the beginning, uh, from the, is, well, we know there are two types of centromeres. There are point centromeres, and an example of a point centromere is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and that's like any DNA binding site. There's a magic DNA sequence, and there are protein readers that recognize the sequence. If you have that sequence, those proteins jump on, and they make a centromere. But even in the East Pombe, it's a yeast. It's a different yeast. It's a fission yeast. It's evolutionary, extremely different from uh, budding yeast. It has what we call a regional centromere. And so in the regional centromere, the centromere is spread over a much larger region of the chromosome. And it happens that if you take a region of a pombe chromosome that contains a centromere and you put it into pombe cells, it doesn't make a centromere very easily. Actually, it takes about 1 in 10 to the 5th cells transformed You'll get a centromere. and Robin Alshar and other people figured out that what has to be, what must be going on, is something epigenetic must be going on. Now, actually, I had, a, I had the, I actually published the first evidence for this in humans, by, at a collaboration with a woman named Barbara Mijan. We got a hold of a chromosome that had two centromeres on it, and we had two of these chromosomes. We had one chromosome that was an X chromosome. And one chromosome that was an autosome. Now, both the X chromosome and the autosome had two centromeres on them. It turns out that the only way in which these chromosomes were stable with two centromeres was one centromere was turned off. Okay, so that's so the question is how is the centromere turned off? Well, I I took my antibodies that I had from the patients and I stained the autosome. And when I stained the autosome, I saw that one protein, SIMP B, was present at the active centromere and also at the inactive centromere. And that's because it turns out, as Hiroshi Masamoto identified, SYNP B recognizes a DNA bind, a DNA sequence. So it's a DNA binding protein of the centromere. But the active centromere also had SYNP A and SYNP C. The inactive centromere had only SYNP B. So I saw that. But now I looked at the X. And at the X chromosome, the active centromere had SYNP A, B, and C, and the inactive centromere didn't have anybody. There was no SYNP-B there, but the DNA was there, and what we knew at the time was X chromosomes were methylated, and that there were uh, that the chromatin on the X chromosome was different. This is 1985, okay? So we didn't know very much about, it. the word epigenetics was used by Waddington for something completely different than not histone met- modifications. But what I suggested, the only thing, the, o- the only reason I could see why the DNA sequences would be there on the autosome and they were there on the X, but the protein bound to the autosome and didn't bind to the X must be that the chromatin, the chromatin was important for assembling something about the chromatin state was important for assembling the centromeres. And then it's later turned out that at least one of the epigenetic marks that makes centromeres is this, is the protein SEMP-A, which is a specialized form of histone, but it takes more than that. And so uh, uh, a number of years ago, it was a 2008 or 2010. I can't remember exactly. Uh, We, I I designed a chromosome to try to study that problem. And so what I did was I I knew at the time that it was possible, possible to make artificial human chromosomes by taking human alpha satellite DNA. If you had repetitive arrays of alpha satellite DNA and you had introduced it into HT1080 cell line, one specific cell line. And the reason is because that cell line is a, is a hypomorph for Suv3.9. So it has low levels of H3-lysine-9 trimethylation. And you require that in order to be able to, what happens, you put the DNA into the cells, it binds SIMP a and uh, in some cells, in about 10 or 15% of the cells, you can make artificial chromosomes. So I decided that what I wanted to do was to make a synthetic artificial chromosome where I could ask about epigenetics at the centromere. So I designed an artificial alpha satellite dimer So one, one monomer is, one monomer was just from alpha satellite, piece of alpha satellite DNA from chromosome 17, and it had a binding it had the sequence that SIMP b binds to on it. And the other monomer was just a consensus sequence for alpha satellite DNA, which had been figured out by a guy named Andy Chu. But where the SIMP b binding site would be, we put a tetracycline operator. So we made this dimer. And then uh, to uh, my my uh, my incredibly uh, I mean just virtuosic uh, cloning Russian friends Vladimir Larianov and Natasha Kaprina were the only two people who could who could do this. They developed a way to make a 50 kb array of that of that dimer, and we put that dimer into cells, and we made synthetic and we made artificial chromosomes. But now what we could do with these artificial chromosomes is we could make chimeric proteins which would be tet-repressor attached to various enzymes, activities, and we could target them into the centromere. So the first thing that we did was a big surprise to us because everybody in every textbook tells you that centromeres are surrounded by heterochromatin. So centromeres are in heterochromatin. So what we did was we targeted a protein, we we targeted a, a Chromatin silencer. It's a protein called the TTS. It recruits a protein called cap one which people may have heard of so uh, We were we targeted that into the kinetochore and we thought we'll make a super strong kinetochore because we'll make it more Heterochromatic it just completely kills the kinetochore So heterochromatin kills the kinetochore now long about that time Gary Carp and Beth Sullivan and Michael Blower and Gary Carp's lab And published that actually, centromeres around the SIMP A they have a special kind of chromatin. They have SIMP A, but they also have H3 dimethylated on lysine four. Now that's a mark of actively transcribed genes. And then later on, we when we were looking at our artificial chromosome, we found that they also have H3 K36 dimethyl and trimethyl. That is again a mark that you see on actively transcribed genes. And so we thought, wait a minute. So and, and so Gary Carpin called this centrochromatin. So it seemed that centrochromatin was flanked by heterochromatin. Now, Pete, you could look, and so this is what I wanted. To, the reason I designed this chromosome is Beth Sullivan and the, and and her collaborators they could look at these cells and they could say, there's H3K4 dimethyl in the centromere, and I would say, yeah. So is, who cares? <laughs> so what we could do is we could now tie, target in. Uh, and the, the, the most definitive studies we did were done by a postdoc of mine named Oscar Molina. He could target in an enzyme called LSD2. So he could take, uh, he could take Terapeu's presser, fuse it to LSD2 and target it to the chromosome. And what LSD2 would do is it would demethylate H 3 k 4 dimethyl. And what happens, what happens is over the course of about a week, the centromere dies. So, we know that these sequences are transcribed. Uh, that's a whole other story. The transcription stopped. The H3K4 dimethyl went away, and then the SYNP-A went away, and then you were done. So uh, we said, okay, so we could show that actually that, that, that epigenetic mark, H3K4 dimethylation, was required for uh, maintenance and function of the kinetochore uh, the first thing that, so the, the next question that we wanted to ask, and it took us a while to be able to figure out how to do it, was when we put L, we started with an enzyme called LSD1. That was a, a, a student of mine named Jan Bergman who did that with LSD1. The trouble with LSD1 was, so the first paper we published saying that H3K4 dimethyl was important was with LSD1. But LSD1 also binds uh, uh, the coREST complex and brings in a bunch of other things. So you don't just demethylate the DNA when you use LSD-1. You bring in other activities. LSD-2 was a little bit cleaner. It seemed to just be demethylating the DNA. So the so Jan Bergman and Oscar later had seen the H3K4 dimethyl went away, the transcription stopped, and then the centromere died. So now we want to know, is it the H3K4 dimethyl, or is it the transcription that's important? So... We had, in the meantime, done another set of experiments where we put the TTA as a very famous strong transcriptional activator. And we targeted, We made our own version of the TTA, and we targeted that into the centromere. So we said, okay, heterochromatin kills the centromere. What if you put transcription into the centromere? carry Bloom, many, many years ago, had shown in budding yeast that if you transcribe through a budding yeast centromere, you kill it. But that's kind of like because you're shooting a machine gun at it with the transcripts just flying through. So what happens if you target transcription into these larger regional centromeres? What happens? You kill a centromere. So we said, okay, fine. Uh, But we, then we used the uh, P65 from NF-kappa B. It's it's also a, it's a co-activator in NF-kappa B. We used the chromosome activation domain for P65, which is a much shorter region that Andy Belmont had mapped out. And we targeted that into the centromere. Now, that turns up that opened up the chromatin and it increased transcription, but only by a few fold, and that didn't kill the centimeter. So now we a, now we could do uh, we could set up what I, I was referring to like a cage fight. So now we take our, our artificial chromosome and we target into it LSD2. LSD2 is going to demethylate lysine4, and it's going to kill transcription. Now we also target. We also we so we just add tet. So we add tet repressor LSD2. But there's lots of tet operators there. So let's add in tet repressor with p65 activation domain. So now we're going to remove LSD. We're going to remove the H3K4 dimethylation, but we're going to give back transcription. But I I I I have to say that we also did we we in addition to p65. We, we had identified another chromosomal protein that we called SEMP28, which is all, also known as EAF6. And that's also known as part of a number of, of com, acetyltransferase complexes and is a coactivator. So we target, it and, and what we showed is when we targeted uh, uh, SEMP28 into centromeres, we could activate transcription, we can increase transcription. And we saw that for whatever reason in our system, when we targeted simp 28 in, what we saw increasing was acetylation of, light, of histone H4, but we did not see any increase in H3K9 acetylation. Don't know why. That's just that's the, what happened when you target sim 28 in. When you targeted P65 in, what you saw was an increase in H3K9 acetylation. So that's now, the, the, we needed those three things to put the experiment together. So, the first thing we did is we, we put in LSD2. So, we killed transcription and we got rid of H3K4 dimethylation. We added SIMP28. We got transcription back. The centromere was still dead. And actually, that was the first experiment we did. And the referees said, well, you just, you, you know, putting transcription in doesn't help. It's, there's some other explanation. You, maybe your transcription was too strong. So then we did, and uh, when we were revising the paper, we did. Uh, but we said we were thinking about it. and we thought, well, yeah, but the SIM288 is re- increasing. That's increasing uh, acetylation of H4, but methylation and the heterochromatin methylation is on is on H3K9. What happens if we put in the p65 and we acetylate the K9? So now it turns out that if you get rid of the dimethyl on, uh, dimethylation on lysine four, but you acetylate H3K9, you rescue the centromere. So, <laughs> the the Sim twenty eight experiment, where we had transcription but we didn't acetylate H3 and we didn't rescue the centromere, told us that transcription alone was not the answer. So we got we, you needed the H3K4 dimethyl that seemed to be something to do. Probably with transcription because transcription fell, so we gave it transcription back, but we acetylated H4 and that didn't rescue. But we gave it transcription and we acetylated H3K9 and that did rescue. And what we could see when we didn't rescue, we could see the heterochromatin coming in, and we could see that SIMP A was being replaced by H3.3, which is a placeholder, uh, which thought many people think is a plate can act as a placeholder for SIMP for SIMP A that's replaced when you have transcription. And so uh, what, what, what that, altogether, what those experiments with the artificial chromosome have led me to believe this is my current state of what's going on in the centromere, is that you require transcription of the centromere because transcription of the centromere gives you acetylation of H3 on K9. And if you're acetylated on K9, you can't become trimethylated on K9, so heterochromatin can't come in. So this is a way of keeping the heterochromatin on the sides where it's supposed to be and keeping the centrochromatin around the centromere uh, in this active state. Now, the unanswered question, uh, there's, enough, there's lots of unanswered questions. One of the unanswered questions is, what's the H3K36 methylation doing? Is it the same kind of thing? And the answer is, so far, we haven't been able to do it. We've been, we've been trying to get rid of the H3K36 trimethylation and we've made the constructs, and for some reason, the chimeric proteins aren't working in our hands. So we're still struggling with that one. Long story there.
0: Yeah, but very interesting and an yeah, interesting story. So in the last, I think it's 50 minutes now, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that you might have missed in this interview? Ooh. Just as the last yeah. question. <laughs> well, I,
1: I or the things that I'm, I mean the things that I'm most proud I, I, the things that I'm most proud of are I, I think I, I, what I'm most proud of is is working in, in three areas. The first was cloning the centromere proteins and identifying the centromere proteins. And the reason why I think the reason the, the a kind of a lesson to be learned from that was I got autoantibodies from patients. And later on, we developed some diagnostic. We used our cloned antigens to develop diagnostic tests. So we gave something back to the patients. But it was the human patients who gave us the antibodies to the human proteins. And the human centromere proteins were identified before the yeast proteins and before the Before We beat all of the model systems. And we beat the model systems by taking the human antibodies and studying human material with them. And I think in the future, as we go forward with all of what's known about the human genome and what we can do and the power that we now have with CRISPR t- technology, the model organisms have very, very important things to tell us. But looking at the wealth of medical information that's available on human conditions and human polymorphisms, working with the human material is really extremely exciting. So that was the first thing that was really exciting to me. Uh, the second thing that was exciting was working with the chromosomal passenger complex because when we started working with that complex the people who worked on the cell nucleus did not talk to the people who worked on the cytoplasm so the people who worked on chromosomes didn't talk to the people who worked on motors they were different groups of people but to work on the chromosome passenger complex you had to talk to everybody because at one part of the cell cycle Aurora kinase is regulating chromatin assembly. And in other parts of the cell cycle, it's regulating motors and it's regulating the, the, uh, the machinery that does the abscission, the, the, the membrane fusions that, uh, that actually separate the two daughter cells. So that was, really, uh, that was really satisfying because it meant that you had to have a kind of an integrated view of mitosis. You couldn't just look at one simple part. And, that, and then, now what I love, uh, uh, what, I'm, what, what I'm really excited about is, is uh, what I'm most excited about, and what my latest grant, uh, which is currently being reviewed, so fingers crossed, is using this system where we can get this almost perfect entry of cells into mitosis to really study the events that happen during mitosis and see if, if we can use that to figure out how mitotic chromosome structure is formed. So I think that our, our science paper with Jog Decker, and Leon Mirde, which, 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 which was the, really the work of Kamiko Samajima, Johan Gibkus, and Anton Golub dorotko those are the three people who actually did the work. Uh, uh, that showed that all the models were right. The chromosomes, there's a helix in chromosomes. That's what the scaffold is a helix. There are loops in the chromosomes. And also, out in the outer part of those loops, the chromatin collapses probably into a phase. It's probably a, phase, a type of phase separation. So, it is kind of unstructured spaghetti. So, it, it was exactly what the three previous people or the three previous models over the previous century of work on mitosis had come up with. But we need to know more about exactly how these complexes work. How do cohesin and condensin and interact with one another when they're trying to compact chromosomes? And actually, well, I, I probably a nice thing to finish with is a problem uh, that, uh, that we realized when we finally got really good genetic tools to knock out condensin and cohesin in chromosomes. And what we realized is condensin and cohesin are not what compact the chromatin. So in fact, the chromatin in mitotic cells is three times more compacted than it is in interphase. You've, you've all heard that it's 10,000-fold compacted. Yes, it's 10,000-fold compacted, but it's 3,000-fold compacted in an interface nucleus already. So it's a three-fold difference. If you don't have any condensin and you don't have any cohesion and you go into mitosis, the chromatin still compacts three-fold. So what's doing that? Uh, Alicia Zitaneva in my lab and Paolo Vanurelli came up with a hypothesis that that's epigenetic. It's chromatin modifications. And in fact, if we isolate histones with all their modifications on them from interface nuclei and from mitotic cells, and we assemble them onto a DNA stretch uh, made by John Widham, a 501 array of nucleosome uh, positioning sequences. And so we make a string of interface chromatin and a string of mitotic chromatin from mitotic histones and from interface histones, the interface chromatin, chromatin is nice little stringy bits that are nice and individual, and the mitotic chromatin all clumps up together. So there's something in the mitotic histones that makes, drives that compaction. And we believe that it's a combination of histone post translational modifications, and we don't know what it is, and we're going to try to figure it out.
0: And we hope to reach uh, this information soon <laughs> in, in Nature of Science. Uh, thank you, Bill, well, for your time and for being on the show.
1: Well, thank
0: you very much. Uh, I hope that was useful. Very much so. This was the 26th episode of the Epigenetics podcast. Even though it took a little bit longer as usual, I hope you still enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast at activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, Motivations, at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.